there. This is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love talking to creative people about their work and their journeys and how they hang in. Today, my guests are Tom Gustafson and Corey Kruckerberg. They are the men behind the new movie, Glitter and Doom. Tom directed it, Corey wrote it, and they produced it together. They also worked on previous films together like Hello Again and Were the World Mine. Uh, This new movie is a gay love story between two young men set to the music of the Indigo Girls, who I love. I've talked about them before on this podcast. The film is the opening night movie of the Gay Film Festival in San Diego, and it's got a slew of other festival appearances coming up, which we talk about in the interview. But before I get to that, I want to remind you that this podcast, Dennis Anyone, is brought to you by Cheese Whiz. Cheese Whiz for all... No, 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 it's not. I don't have any sponsors. It's just me. I do it, um, but I love it. And I hope you enjoy it too. And if you want to support the podcast, there are two ways you can do that. You can leave a tip in my virtual tip jar. Uh, It helps me cover the expenses that come with doing that. And you can do that at DennisAnyone.net. Or you can become a subscriber to DNR Studios. I'm part of a group of shows under the Derek and Romaine banner. And for a monthly subscription fee, you get my show early and you get all these other terrific shows. So you can learn about that at dnrstudios.com. I also want to remind you that I have a phone number. If you want to call and leave a message or a question, anything about the podcast, I have a voicemail. And that number is 1-888-647-9653. All right, that's enough for the business. Let's get to the interview. Here are Tom Gustafson and Corey Kruckerberg the men behind Glitter and Doom. Joining me from Harlem via Zoom, it's Tom Gustafson and Corey Krukerberg. They are the men behind the new movie Glitter and Doom. Tom directed it. Corey wrote it. They produced it together. And it's a delight, first of all. It's a... um, Musical love story with Indigo Girls music, and so already you're ticking all my boxes. And so I'm so excited to talk to you guys. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having us. So people can get used to whose voice is whose. Tom, why don't you describe the <laughs> film for somebody that knows nothing about it? How would you describe it? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's loosely autobiographical uh, love story between two young men. Um, one who's kind of a um, musician down on his luck, basically. And then another who is uh, a little circus obsessed um, and they meet and they basically have like 29 days. Is it 29, 28 days, 29 days <laughs> um, before they're going their separate ways. So it's really about, you know, well, this is this something lasting. Um, and it's got a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of, crazy musical moments in it with Indigo Girls. <laughs> why, why wouldn't you want to do that? Um, exactly. Corey, as the screenwriter, what was the germ of starting the project? Well, first of all, our voices sound, according to our dog, our voices are the same, so she can't tell the difference between us, <laughs> right. so maybe the listeners won't either. But, um, well, okay, we were, we had been wanting to do another queer romance musical our first feature was where the world mind which was you know it did extremely well in the festival circuit it did extremely well in its limited theatrical run and we still make money on it today on like DVD, yeah you make money i want to pause strange. for a second yeah. to give you a shout out for making money on yeah. a gay movie i remember it yes. i loved it i had a friend that was really yeah. obsessed with it and he was like you have to watch this and it was just like this sweeping romantic <laughs> Fantasia musical and it's profitable. It's profitable. Well done. Yeah. Okay. 
Just wanted to underscore well, the proper that, part. We thank you. We we're not. We were just, I mean, a small profitable. Sure. Like a, no, we're know, not going crazy. We're not going crazy. <laughs> We're not building rockets drink or going into space, but yeah. <laughs> but, we, but we still also do get very nice comments from even young people who are seeing it for the first time, and it's still resonating like it was 15 years ago. You know, yeah. it's very the story is not is sort of timeless in a way. But anyway, we didn't we weren't necessarily trying to recapture that. We were just like, let's do another like young love musical romance, and we um we looked at a few existing. Uh, properties like existing off-Broadway musicals and things that hadn't quite made it to off-Broadway yet. And um, nothing was really working out. Nothing was really like exactly what we, what we were thinking. And we were actually on our way to some random event in Brooklyn in the car with our friend Jenna Ushkowitz, who's in our movie Hello Again. And she was like, why don't you just base it on your story? Because your origin story has some unique qualities to it. And I was like, that's a good idea. And then I started mapping it out and I think that was like one summer. And then the next summer was our 20th anniversary. And I gave him the first draft of the script for uh, our anniversary, our 20th anniversary. And it had, um, I know it would be a musical. It's pretty close to what it is right now, but it didn't have any specific songs in it. It was like, this is where it's going to be the, like, I want song where he needs to find love. And then this is going to be like the fun song where they go on their camping date and like all of that stuff. And we went through, you know, several ideas of how this music would come to be. We talked to a couple of composers of musical theater um, that had done Broadway, off-Broadway type stuff. And then we started thinking, what if it's more like jukebox musical with music from the era when we met, which was the summer of 1998. And everybody was like, you're never going to be able to get the rights to the songs from 20 different artists that will be complete nightmare. And I was actually sitting at this desk one day and I like yelled to him in the other room. And I was like, what about Indigo Girls? Because they were like a huge part of my life is like a, you know, angsty college student and after college. And we both loved them. We'd seen them in concert many times and they have this incredibly deep, rich catalog of music to choose from. And so we sent an email to their manager, Russell, and got a very, very, very fast response that they wanted to read the script. And I think it was, I always say this, but I think it's true. I think it was within a week that they said yes, which in our business, you know, that's insane. Like, Things yeah. take way longer than that typically. So yeah, so that's like where it started and how it kind of came to be. And then I spent about three months actually going through the whole catalog, like listening to the song and then going back and reading the lyrics, then listening to the song while knowing the lyrics, then listening, you know, trying to figure out how it was going to work and the mashups and what we were going to be able to put together. And they gave us, they gave us, they said, you can choose any 25 songs from our catalog. 25. And so yeah. And wow. so there's about 25 songs that are used in some way in, in, in the movie. Um, yeah. And there's other, I mean, there's other songs that we just use like lyrics from or, right. or little snippets I or noticed. titles or little Easter yeah. eggs. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Tom, what did it feel like to get that script uh, on your anniversary? Did you know something <laughs> was coming? Was he working on something or was it out of the blue? Well, I knew he was writing something. I didn't know it was that. And I didn't know, right? I didn't know. I think you knew I was writing it, but I didn't, you didn't know I was going to give it to you. Yeah, I didn't know it was done. We were actually in Hawaii, right? Because we were on our way to, to a we were on our way to a film festival for Hello Again. Was it Hello Again? Yeah. Or was it? Um, yeah. And so that was a big surprise. It was very, very sweet. Um, he also gave me some, some Converse shoes with our, with our old Greyhounds photos on it, which was also very sweet. 
<laughs> There's a greyhound in the movie. So do you guys love greyhounds? We do. This is the the one that's in the movie is our is our newest greyhound. But uh, yes, we greyhounds are very sweet dogs. Well, my f- good friend Bill is obsessed with them and had one, and then that one passed away and got another one. But the life of a greyhound, that journey from the track to a home, yeah. is something that I find very moving. And certainly, my friend is really into it. Um, I want to yeah. say that occasionally you talked about the moment where you looked up from your desk and said, what about the Indigo Girls? I do that a lot on my own for no reason, but I, <laughs> occasionally I will just do it because I'm such a fan. Um, they appear in the movie. And first of all, Amy, good actor, like natural. Yeah, yeah. She plays like the studio mm-hmm. producer, but just very natural in front of the camera. Like you feel like she's like, I got this. I can do it, you know? And it's always yeah. delightful to see Emily. I saw the documentary about them recently and cried through the whole thing. Um, I I think if you look at my favorite Indigo Girl songs, they're more Emily written than Amy. And what I found very poignant about the documentary is that they acknowledge that. Like Amy talks about like, I think the songs people love more are Emily's. I think they are. You know, like she owns that. And I was like, mm, guilty. Um, but without the two of them, there is no Indigo Girl. So they're, I love them both. Totally. When you were choosing songs, was that a consideration at all? Who wrote it? Well, yes. So I'm a Virgo. So I have a very detailed like spreadsheet of how I was going through and making notes on the songs. And I color-coded. <laughs> Amy was orange and Emily was yellow so that I could make sure that I was staying relatively sort of like even. But it was actually pretty easy because, well, Doom, which is loosely inspired by me, um, he resonates more with like the Amy songs. Right. Doom is Um, the angry rocker. Yeah. And and I, and I find the aspiring clown. If I had to, I think of my favorite songs, I think maybe, maybe Amy has a couple more than Emily in my list of personal favorite songs, maybe because of that. But then, you know, you need for the story of glitter and Jim, you need the balance to that darkness. So it was actually like, not just like the perfect choice of artists because people often ask like, why why them and it's like first of all they were like out queer artists at a time when nobody was doing that you know they've been trailblazing with their music and with their with their um with their advocacy and everything for so long and And they kind of got shit on for it in the beginning like they got made fun of and like they paid a price for it in terms of career i don't think they minded that you know they 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 wanted to be who they were but they absolutely did and they were really ahead of the curve on that but choosing the songs was, it was actually not that difficult to find the balance between the two of them as writers, because you need both of those, obviously, for this story, the, both of those voices. And it, it kind of, you know, where it worked out really well. And we actually used one solo song from a solo Emily album, and we used one little bit of a song from a solo Amy album um, also. And so, yeah, it was I was definitely concerned about making sure that it was evenly divided and also just so that the story felt balanced, you know, because, you know, it's, it is a story about balance in a lot of ways. How it was were, hard though. There was still, oh, go ahead. there was still like a list of songs that like, well, we love that were like, how can, is there list, any way to fit it in? A lot of people's favorite Indigo Girl songs are the breakup songs. And we yeah. don't really have that moment in our movie. So maybe in a sequel, there will be a, um, <laughs> a breakup, a whole breakup montage. Break up, yeah. Yeah. Well, you got my favorite in there. Love will come to you, but Oh, it's, good. Yeah. You hear the, the Indigo Girls voices. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And thank you for that. I was like, if they don't have this, I, this interview is yes. not going to go well. 
um, if it's not there. But that was actually not in the. It was not in the first cut. No. Interesting. We we uh, we it was, had it we was had kid fears in that place. Oh, interesting. But we were focusing on we we were focusing yeah. on like the darkness and doom's yeah. psyche, and then we realized it's a love story. We need to bring out yeah. the love story. Yeah, and that was using their voices to bring the love story to the forefront right in the first act of the movie is was very important. Yeah. The vocal arrangements and the musical arrangements are wonderful. They don't sound like the originals. I'm like, I'm singing every word to the song, and yet I can't figure, oh, that's Prince of Gar- it's Prince of Darkness. Like, it, it was <laughs> because it sounded male, clubby, kind of very cool. How did you come up on that sound, and who did you work with, and, and how hard was that to find? Um, we met several people. Um, we met some very marquee name type producer types. Um, we met some smaller sort of indie producer types and we had been, we, we, we only watched the voice one season. I don't know why, but it happened to be the season that Michelle Shamuel, she sang, I kissed a girl and that's how she got her. The chairs turned for her and she ended up being the runner up on the show. And very unapologetically out sort of artist. She was sort of after that experience, not impressed with the music industry at large and didn't really want to partake, partake in the sort of music industry as a commercial entity. So she kind of just went off and did her own music and did her own stuff. And we made a little movie called Getting Go. And she graciously, I reached out and said, I really love your music and I'd love to use some of it. And she gave us um, the rights to that for, you know, very, very um, generous um, very generously so that we could have it in the movie and then several songs right? several songs yeah. yeah and when then this came around she was definitely on my list and we were we were of the people we were meeting and she was she is like us like she is like she does everything herself she's like she, you know for better or for worse she's like in her studio she's playing the drums and recording them she's playing the guitar and recording them she has she's a complete musical genius and she was a huge indigo girls fan also and was completely just like i'm along for the ride no matter what it takes or you know, I want to make this amazing. And so we did a lot of, um, we did a lot of sharing of other musicians that we liked that we thought we were trying to build the sound of the movie and the sound, especially of like sort of doom's musical sound. And we listened to like a lot of, we listened to like Patrick Wolf and Kevin abstract and Frank ocean. And, um, obviously wanted to always keep a little bit of like the vintage Indigo girls vibe in it in some way. Um, and it was just like a trial and error. Like some songs she sent me the, like the mystery, the song mystery, the first demo she sent me is almost exactly how it is in the movie. Like it was just perfectly spot on. Like she captured everything we wanted in the first demo. And some, it took, you know, 10 or 15 tries to figure, to find the right sort of groove for it. And, you know, and then we, but that was really just trying to find the structure, right? I well, mean, was before form, we shot. it was form and, and style. We yeah. were finding the forms of the songs, how the mashups would work together and, what the sound would be and then but the tracks didn't really get produced until after we shot well and it was like this she did a pre she did demos of everything yeah. with that with just her and then she actually came to mexico city where we shot and she was the onset music like supervisor music director and worked with the actors in the studio and on set like 99 percent of what you hear in the movie was sung live in the scene. Um, wow, that was one of my questions. I, there were times where yeah. it looked like it, but you're never sure with a musical. So they sang live in the yeah. scene and you recorded live sound. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. yeah. Anne Hathaway can do always, it, win an Oscar. Then right. 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 We've done that on we've done that on all of our movies, from Where the World Mind, especially Where the World Mind, not as much. I think actually probably half of Where the World Mind, but all of our movies since 
have been like that. Cause you just, there's a different thing you can't capture when you're lip syncing to something that you've recorded, like sometimes a month ago, you know? Right. Um, and so, yeah, she was on set for all of that. And then after we wrapped, we started, I, I edited the film also. So I was putting together the scenes and like what we needed. And she, she, we, we had a string arranger. We, she recorded some, she went, she was in Mexico city and did some, she recorded a harpist from Mexico city and, and some uh, drummers and like did all kinds of like, you know, outsourcing of recording and arranging to get some of the other stuff that we needed and then put it all together. And she's completely amazing. And we're completely, the whole movie is, is successful in large part because of her work. I want that soundtrack. You, the music is, yeah. I, lo- I love it so much. Yeah. Um, let's talk about your two lead actors. Cause they were very fresh faced, very new. And I was looking, uh, reading about them. One is from England. Uh, Alan, uh, is it Camish? Alan Camish? Camish. Uh, Alan Camish yes, is British. He plays Doom. <laughs> and Alex Diaz is from Manila. And uh, he plays Glitter. Where did you find these guys? Well, it was during, we were still kind of in the middle of the pandemic. And right. so because of that, which obviously has become a, a problem since, but, you know, you really, everybody was doing virtual auditioning. Right. So, you know, our casting directors set up uh, cast calls kind of all, all over the world um, for these two roles. And we, we knew we were shooting in Mexico City. So we we didn't have to, you know, we, we kind of opened it up to anybody and everybody. And so we had, you know, all these tapes sent in from all over where the people would be singing. They do a little bit of a scene and then a, a piece of an Indigo Girl song. Um, and yeah, so we got Alan first. Yeah. Uh, you want to tell that story? <laughs> well, like I mean, story? Alan looks um, like he could play David Bowie. There was a, a lot like of like a young Bowie biopic. He's got that <laughs> yeah, face exactly. or a Rupert Everett thing going yeah. on. Yeah. There were a lot of submissions because yeah. also at that time, nobody was doing anything. So everybody was just, Oh, I'll do a tape. Um, so we got, I don't know, well over a thousand submissions. And I mean, meanwhile, we were also kind of going through the motions of the people that won't audition. So it's like yeah, kind of exploring the name actors, quote unquote name right. actors and seeing if any of that, most, any of that which is were worthwhile. Just, most of just were not in the right age range. Yeah. We really wanted younger, younger people. And, and, um, you know, at the time, really, this whole virtual auditioning wasn't really very organized. So it was like just a big Dropbox that our casting director kept putting videos into. So it was a little bit exhausting to go through in that way. And they, and one night I was laying in bed and I was just going through the Dropbox, making sure I'd seen like all of the most recent ones. And, and Alan's video came on and I was immediate. It was like, he is doomed. Like this is doomed. And I emailed or texted or emailed to Tom in the middle of the night. He's like laying in the bed next to me, but he was asleep. And I was like, I think this is him. And. He was pretty much the front runner from that moment on. And then we did some callbacks virtually with people from all over the world. And, um, and we, yeah. And then we, we had a different actor that we had cast as glitter. And then that person ended up having a conflict that they weren't willing to change. And so we had already cast uh, Ming, Ming Na Wen to play um, glitter's mom and so we were like well what do we do are we gonna are we gonna try to find somebody who who feels like they could be her her like child that she gave birth to and so our casting director put out a breakdown specifically in in like the philippines and japan and like in that little in that sort of pocket of asia where um 
Ming's family is from. And within, I, that was a Thursday night and Friday afternoon, Alex, we saw Alex's audition and we're like, that's him. Mm -hmm. And then we did a callback early Monday morning with Alan via like zoom or whatever, and then cast him that day. So, um, and, and we were trying to be quick also because he, he had to learn how to juggle. He never juggled before in his life for this right. movie. And he literally juggles fire, which is like, <laughs> it's not a trick. There are no trick. There's no stunt doubles in the movie. Like he does it all himself. And it's kind of insane that he actually was able to learn it that quickly. But we also, I mean, during the process, like it was really important for us to have out actors, yeah, right. whatever, whatever spectrum they're on, at sure. least they're out and honest, whatever that is. And we had some, we had some weirdness with that with agents that were lying about oh, yeah. their clients. You so know, they were we saying they friends. were LGBT, but oh, they yeah. weren't. Oh, we had it. We oh, wow. Tell, we How tell far friends, we've like, come. Oh, these are the people. Yeah. Know, we, like, right? These are the people that are, um, that are like our front runners. And, and one of them, our friend was like, um, I'm pretty sure he's straight. Yeah. We have the same agent. And she's like, yeah, I just texted my agent. He's straight. And we're like, what? Wow. <laughs> the this is something out of uh, the other two TV show, like where they're flipping it all. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Alex had, a, I mean, Alex had a pretty amazing story because he, you know, he was outed in the Philippines several years back. Right. Cause he's Twitter. a public on, figure there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah and he was, yeah. and he was outed by like his trainer or something. And it was pretty awful for him. Oof. And he thought he was done. And then he leaned into it and he was like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to be out and I'm going to, you know, and Go I'm going to be delicious. He's delicious. I'm going to be delicious. <laughs> yeah. like, I'm going to be, screw it. I'm delicious. Um, yeah. Is it hard to gauge chemistry over Zoom between actors? How do you how do you look at that? Um, it is. It is. Uh, I mean, listen. They're luckily for this particular movie. Like, if they have, if their chemistry is a little weirdly off, it doesn't necessarily wouldn't necessarily be bad for the film. But I think if you have people that are, yes, it's nearly impossible. Although they do the way they look into the camera, the way they look at, like, you can tell how engaged a person is. And I think a lot of chemistry between actors is how interested they are in the other person in general or in other people and not just themselves. Yeah. And they both, you could tell from those callbacks that they were really like leaning into each other in, in that process. So that was probably the best hint that we had. Um, we actually both were extremely passionate about really wanting the job and that, yeah. you know, that was, as important to us probably as as chemistry which is fine I mean, we did do a couple in person we were on zoom but there was some in-person la uh kind of callbacks yeah and it was i mean that's where you really see it it's like if, if alex and alan have more chemistry on zoom than the people that we have <laughs> yeah. in a room like that it's clearly not their role right like, and they're both sort of triple or quadruple threats like they dance they both dance yeah, huh? And I'm like, yeah, you're not yeah. cutting around Alan, the guitar player. No, he's doing the moves, like, and he's doing them really well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're both, and then juggling and the guitar playing and the singing, the acting. They're, you, you, you know, you found really good guys. Um, when I was doing more journalism, I would often ask, um, magazine journalism, I'd often ask people, what movie would you like to live inside? And some would say, you know, Willy Wonka or whatever. You know, it's just a fun kind of question. I want to live inside your movie. Um, I went to Mexico City for the first time in May, and I I was just enchanted by it. And, and and as I was watching this, I'm like, I think that's Mexico City. I think it's Mexico City. I started kind of getting like like all uh, Twitter pated about it, if that's a word. Anyway, Mexico City. Talk to me about why you chose to shoot there, and the visuals in this movie are stunning. The the 
the uh, landscapes, not just the urban stuff, like beautiful outdoor stuff that I'm like, are we in Narnia? Where are we? Like, it was just spectacular. <laughs> so talk about the choice to shoot in Mexico City. We had done immersed everything in the movie is within the city limits of Mexico City. It's it's a vast city. It's it's the largest city in North America. And we I think we only left the actual city limits for the one like liquor store scene. I think that was the only thing outside of it. Yeah. But, but the why well, we, we had done a movie down in Mexico, uh Fears back called Mariachi Gringo. And we we're obsessed with Mexico. We love Mexico. We love everything about it. So Believe me, I was there um, going, I could live here. I think I could live here. Yeah, Trump yeah. wins again. And Mexico City you know. is Mexico City to me is just like so magic. It's like it's the culture and the walkability in the neighborhoods of New York with the weather of LA, which is why I think it's like a better common a better version of both of them. And for Mariachi Gringo, we shot in Guadalajara, which is also an amazing city, but we did the pre-production and the post-production in Mexico City. So we spent a, we shot a little bit in Mexico City, but we probably we spent about a year and a half. Shot the bulk that. of it yeah. in Guadalajara. Um, and so when we, when we decided to do this film and we got the money to do this film, you know, we, at first we were thinking, okay, let's, let's figure out, can we take it to Albuquerque? Should we take it to New Orleans? Like what would have like an interesting visual yeah, style and right. what makes sense of Indigo Girls music. And, you know, and, and we were leaning towards maybe New Mexico. Um, and then we started thinking about Mexico, Mexico and like what, what you can do down there, not only, it give you know on this budget you suddenly have more shooting days you have a bigger crew you have a more experienced crew um you know and that's that's still paying people well but obviously your money goes further in mexico and the history of cinema in mexico is older than the history of cinema in hollywood like it goes back you know it's it's right around the same time slightly predating so they have a very very strong rich cinematic history and a huge pool of actors and crew and people that are extremely good filmmakers and then we love the idea i mean people i think people have such a ridiculous idea of what mexico city is you know like people every don't time realize. i would say somebody that, that i was going there yeah. people would be like mm, yeah. you better be careful you're gonna get kidnapped and let me just totally. tell you i felt safer there than i do in america <laughs> no i didn't oh, feel like some 100%. crazy guy was going to show yeah. up with an ak you know 15 or ar-15 or whatever like no i felt safer I, there the people seemed less on edge yeah. And there were moments like when we were promoting or doing mariachi gringo that we would take a picture and send it to somebody. And, you know, it's like they would think that you're in New York or L.A. And you're like, nope, Mexico City. You know what I mean? Like it it literally has every every look that you possibly could imagine. But um, visually cool places like the apartment building yeah. where Doom lives with the yeah. like bright blue and that kind of old fashionedness. Yeah. And then the landscapes outside are like breathtaking. Yeah. Those drone shots, I was like, "Whoa, where are we?" I so- mean, it was it was a, it was very it was actually difficult to choose locations because there were so many options. Like you know, in the U.S., we would have ended up comp- doing a lot of compromising, but this was like the other type of problem where like there were so many options, and it's like it became a little difficult to be you know to choose because of like we were really making very specific strong choices about where this movie is set, and we wanted to make sure that we did the old and the new. And the sort of ugly and the pretty and the and the brightly colored and this you know sort of less colored the more monochrom- or the more monochromatic and all of that and it, it was the pu- sort of a puzzle to put all of that together and and um, 
then of course, you know, the week before you shoot, like we had to move Tignatar's dates up like three weeks. So we didn't get the amazing location we wanted for that. But then all of a sudden we got this other amazing yeah. location. <laughs> right. Cause I mean, same are... with our airport, like our airport was an underground mall. That's yeah. that airport. I was like, where is this? This looks amazing. <laughs> like it's, so it's, it's a, a mall. mall. It's not an underground. I mean, it's, and that when they sent that, we were like, oh yeah, that is, that's ridiculous. Like, <laughs> And, and we can shoot there on our budget, <laughs> right? And there are places that uh, U.S. viewers have not seen a million times that we've it yeah, felt right. new. Yeah. In the story, where are we meant to be? Or is it is it ever stated? Or are where? Well, that's what we we liked. We like that idea. Like we like yeah. kind of going with more of like a fabulous, yeah, fable, fable feel. Um, you know, where it could be any. And we also did that with time period, like within the costumes and the props. Like we mix up a bunch of time periods to kind of give it that fabulistic vibe. Yeah, one of the characters gives the other character a CD uh, as a as a gift, but that's based on something you guys did in real life. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, you, you well, when we first when we first met, we were we we literally only had thirty days together before he was going on tour, and I was going to Ireland to to pretend that I was going to do film in Ireland. Um, I love pretending we, I was going to do film in Ireland. It's one of my favorite pastimes. <laughs> I mean, I was very bold. I actually got on the set of Angela's Ashes, and I was like, "I'm here to work on film." Look and at you! Like, you just showed, you, you just showed up. <laughs> you know, you, you picked Angela's <laughs> Ashes because you know it's going. You know it's going to be a romp, a laugh riot. <laughs> I took like a train to a bus. It was like I, a whole I, day I, adventure, and I you just I decided got on set. you were going to. I'll just show up on a set, and they'll find something for me to do. I thought, I mean, I was pretty naive. I was out of That's film amazing, school. That's amazing, though. Sometimes you know, those like, things lead to things. Yeah, and they were like, no, buddy, you gotta <laughs> be. led to Tom being the Santa, Santa Claus photographer at Arnott's, the big department store in Dublin for the season. Which also was a, quite an amazing journey yeah. in itself. But, you know, no, my, my film days. Anyway, while we were apart. Anyway, while we were apart, we had not CDs, but we had tape cassettes. Well, actually, you made a CD before you left. You gave me that. Oh, that's CD. true. Yes, with that that photo is a replica of the photo that we. Yeah, that is true. Of us. I saw that in the that press kit. Yeah. So yeah, is Tom true. gave Corey the yeah. CD. Yes, and it was like a mixtape yes. of just songs. Yeah, yeah. With probably Indigo Girls. It, there was Indigo Girls on it. There was like some Tracy Chapman, Desiree, Smashing Pumpkins. Oh yeah, Smashing Blind Melon, REM. Um. Anyway, but then when we were apart, we would send each other tape cassette tapes yeah. of us like taught. We had, we both got little like voice recorders. I was not sure. So I would show up in like, in like Denver and there would be like at the hotel, there would be a package from Tom from Dublin. But back then the oh, mail you was must kind have been of thrilled to get it. You could send, you could send a tape and it would be from Ireland to the U S in like two days. Wow. And it was just normal, like U S I don't even understand why or how that even worked back then. Yeah. I mean, but we would, you know, send each other tapes and then listen to them and it would be us, you know, that's kind of how we got to really know each other. And then a lot of those tapes we transcribed and became some of the dialogue that's in. Yeah. Corey, what kind of tour were you on? Musical theater, perchance? Um, well, I was a mostly musical theater actor, but that particular tour was with the Chamber Repertory Theater of Boston. Interesting. Classy. Like, um, it was adaptations of 19th century literature. So <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't like the rate. What was the, oh my God. Rate? It was so like no, it wasn't Mamma Mia. It wasn't Mamma Mia. You weren't no, doing no, no, okay. no, 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 no. It was like Edgar Allan Poe and 
It was fine. It was it was a really fun job, actually. We saw 30 states in like five months. It was kind of amazing. I love it. But. One of the themes that I took from your movie is like when you're a creative person and you're aspiring to succeed in these really challenging fields and you're dating, you're not just dating the person, you're dating their dreams and how their dreams are going mm-hmm. and how... Mm-hmm you know, how much rejection they're facing or not, or how these opportunities that you have to take, it takes you out of town. Um, why did you want to explore that idea? Because I think it's different than if you're just working in a city in, a, in an office and you meet somebody. It's different. Yeah, well, I don't know. I guess because that's kind of our lives. Um, when we first, for the first, I don't know, five or six years of being together, we never tried to work together. Um, we, I was really just being an actor and Tom was trying to figure out the film thing. He was, he ended up randomly getting a job. Well, kind of like the angels and ashes story, getting a job on road to perdition in the casting department and worked his way from like nobody PA to like the associate location casting director just during that one movie. And so then he went on and he was, you know, doing, he was doing casting on pirates and like a bunch of things all over, all over the place. And so we were very sort of still separate and like, ourselves as artists and then and he wouldn't need, didn't even want to talk we, then we started like we did our first short film together which i think premiered at tribeca like 20 years ago maybe ish maybe 19, 18 years ago yeah. um and then we started saying like well let's see like if we could work together in that way like if we could write together and produce together and he was very much like never wanted to talk about that while we were in our own sort of social life and our relationship um he tried to keep them very separate. And now it's like, that's all we talk about, which is kind of the bizarre, weird opposite. But I don't know. It's like, I guess it's just because it's us. And I think a lot of people, I mean, we have had the same, I guess also because we've had the same ups and downs in the dreams because we're doing this, we're working on the same things in a way it brings you together. It also like pushes you apart, but it also solidifies the togetherness in a weird way. Um, the disappointments and the the lows and the highs. Um, I don't know. Did I answer it? Is that, do you have anything? (laughs) It's, I I didn't, I mean, I was purposefully trying to bring, because, you know, the story is not, we made a choice to not tell any sort of like story that had any conflict that came from the shame of being in the closet or the shame of who you are, who you're, what your sexuality is. Right. We wanted all of the drama, all of the drama and all of the conflict to come from, their from their connection to each other and from their different backgrounds really is what the idea was and and um and I think that really you know influenced you know I come from a from like a, my like my mom growing up really is Robin is very much inspired by her and she really was had a very difficult life she had a lot of dreams but her mental health issues just did not allow her to ever achieve much more than just barely staying alive and like his you know, his family has a much more generally optimistic point of view about the world. So yeah, when it comes to dreams, it's very much, I I really do believe in this idea of like, do your, do, does your past sort of limit your possibility and like what your dreams are? Like a lot of people have the same dreams, but, and then you get older and you're like, oh, actually, I think it's more like nepotism that allows people to (laughs) succeed, certain people to succeed. I mean, not just, you know, um, but anyway, so I don't know, I guess that, sort of answers it. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, Tom, I want to talk about the visuals as a director. This looked very thought through, planned out. Um, It has a sort of, 
it reminded me a little of Baz Luhrmann. Not that it was like that, but it was like your stamp. You know, when you look at something, you're like, oh, that's Baz Luhrmann. Or you look at, you, this reminded me of where the world were. It's sort of your stamp visually. There's a language, I think, that echoes uh, with your previous work. How do you plan your visuals? What's that process like? Um, I mean, it depends on the DP. This DP uh, that we were working with in Mexico, we we spent maybe, what, three or four weeks? A month, yeah. A month together. Um, and it, we kind of went scene by scene and, and, you know, I, because my background, you know, was, was, uh, Angela's ashes, I'm just kidding. Right. Um, that, that was, lab, <laughs> followed by road to perdition, just all the yeah. wacky comedies of the era. Uh, my, you know, I, I studied photography and I, I love, you know, visual storytelling. So I, it's, you know, kind of looking at each scene and trying to figure out like, what is, what are the moments that are really important to me visually? And then kind of building from there. Um, of course, everything changes on set and you always have problems. And I mean, Corey gets, it gets very annoyed with me because a lot of the stuff that we do in pre-production will go out the window. But I think that by doing kind of that work in pre-production, at least you're, you're, you're ready for the changes on right. set. And it's also choosing. And I, I'm not interested in just normal coverage. Like it's just not that. Right. It's that not like we'll show up on the day that, and figure it out. It feels like it's yeah, gone through. And it has a flair. And sometimes you have to do that. Sometimes right. you like end up panicking. You're like, oh gosh, do I have the wide shot? Do I have the close up? The close up. But, you know, I always try to figure out how to shoot it differently than that. It's also um, largely in your choice of, of, uh, costume designer and production yeah. designer, like very specifically choosing, like Adela, who's our costume designer, is incredible. Like she, she is like, you could never have her on an American indie. Like she, she did like the Selena series. She has, you know, like four or five of the equivalent of the Mexican Oscar. And she's just completely and utterly ridiculously creative. And literally we gave her complete free reign, right? Put them in whatever you want to put them in, like just make it make sense. And she, and she just gave us, she gave so many incredible options. Like, and that and the production designer and just letting them literally just go as far as they want to go. Right. Cause it's not a realistic, it's a, it's a surreal kind of world. It's a, it's a, it's a visual language that's unique to it, to itself. Um, let's talk about some of the women in the film. You've got Tig Notaro, you've got the Indigo girls, you've got Ming-Na Wen, you've got Kate Pearson, B-52s. Um, I'm sure I'm missing people. Tig Notaro, did I say that? Yeah. Leah Delaria. Uh, Leah Delaria. Missy Pyle. Missy, Missy Pyle. I think it's interesting um, that it's a story about a love story between two young men surrounded by these fierce women. Is it just a coincidence or is there a, a thought behind that idea, that composition of cast? No, that was definitely it was totally yeah, intentional. We yeah. like we felt like we felt like um yeah, we felt like to just to feel the balance of it, but also you know, it's, it's very strange. Like the, I don't know, the sort of climate of the, where we are in the world as far as like socially and what, what people have opinions about and what they have very strong opinions about. We actually had someone, for example, like a, a programmer at a festival who did not program our film, who told our, our representatives that they, they thought that we were appropriating lesbian culture, which is why they didn't like the film, Whoa. which have we really oh. gone that far? You know what I mean? But we were purposefully like, this is, we are using Indigo Girls music. So every God, that other hurts person my on the heart. Screen, that hurts my every heart. Other, every other person on the screen needs to be 
a woman or female identifying or on the, you know, maybe, or, or just not a, just cis, cisgendered man. And that was, it was totally, totally intentional. It was totally like, yeah, let's just have that energy. And nobody does that. And, you know, because of the way we put this film together, um, now I'm like a little soapboxy, but like all, out of our 200 plus cast and crew, only three of them, all but three of them identify on the LGBTQ plus spectrum and or as women and or as BIPOC. So like it, that was all intentional to create the kind of feeling we wanted of the film on set. And when you're watching it, it, that was what we wanted. That's what we felt like we needed to do and to honor like all of the, you know, it's and a true international. I mean, it really is an international film yeah, like in a crazy really, way. Yeah. Not only, I mean, obviously our crew is Mexico, from Mexico, but with Alex and Alan, I mean, we really were trying to, yeah. And that's, and you know, every, and every, everybody who, all of those people who came down to be a part of the film, like were very, they, they noticed it immediately. Like they ever, it was one of the reasons people wanted to be involved was the way we're, and we have at all of our festival Q and A's and stuff, people have, everybody mentions it. And it's like, you know, I guess you have to get the occasional, did we, did we, um, like appropriate lesbian culture comment to, I don't know, it's very bizarre, but, but yes, it was intentional. <laughs> right. The, the, the people like Tig and Kate Pearson, do you, did you have previous relationships with them? Did you reach out blindly? Like how did they come to be in the movie? Tig was um, early on. Um, and obviously her relationship with Indigo Girls helped, but right. you know, uh, yeah, I mean, we we went. She through the like she was very very fast. Yes, and also yeah. she's a very extremely supportive. Like we didn't like you know we didn't invite her to the premiere in Toronto because we were afraid that she would be too busy to make the trip. And she called and was like, "Why am Why am I not coming?" And that's happened for like three or four other festivals. She's like, "Why are you guys not inviting me?" Yeah, and then she just comes and she's the most amazing. Says the most the nicest things and is the most supportive person of the film, which is amazing. But. Um, Kate Pearson was, Kate was her, we were trying to get those four cameos and get out the map to be sort of like we wanted to hit some music and some Broadway and some different sort of aspects of culture with, with like, um, with the people. And we had a long list of people that we were kind of just trying to figure out who to go to. And we just asked her and she was, well, what you have to tell that yeah. story. Um, with Kate? I'm shooting her, yeah. Oh, yeah, with Kate. So we were going to shoot. So we did those after the, sh- the main photography. Right. And we were actually going to do that in New York, just at like a little green screen studio. And Kate called and said, why don't you guys come up to Woodstock and shoot at my s- recording studio, like the B-52 studio thing. And Amazing. so we went up there and we got to shoot in that <laughs> in her in her yeah. play, which is uh, was wild, really fun. Um, but even like having Amy and Emily in the movie, you know, we didn't think that was going to happen because of COVID and because of their travel. And you know, they had they had such they just a started touring again and they rough were, time with touring. Yeah. And, and so we, you know, for the role that Amy plays of the doctor, like we were out to people and we we didn't know who exactly it was going to be. We were kind of reaching some other kind of musician icons and and then finally like what a week before yeah uh they're like amy's doing it she's coming she's so cool she's so cool in the studio i love them more both of them more having seen their documentary and having seen them in this movie but emily we we had to shoot later um because she couldn't come down because of other issues and 
So we actually went to Atlanta and shot Emily in Atlanta. Yeah, whenever you see her in the movie, it's green screen. It's it's even when she's in the bar, magic. even when she's in the yeah. bar grooving with everybody oh, yeah. else. Interesting. Yeah. Very seamless. Yeah. Fun behind the scenes. <laughs> um, you mentioned the festival that you didn't get into, and you mentioned earlier, like, sort of disappointments and stuff. That's one of the themes I like to talk about on this show, are the ups and downs of this kind of a life. How do you guys navigate that? How have you learned to deal with the disappointments? Is it good to have two people because one can be up when the other's like down or like how, what have you learned about (laughs) navigating disappointment? Cause I think that's sort of the name of the game. Yeah. It's gotten harder as the years have gone on. I think it's, and we definitely have, I'm definitely more optimistic and I always think that it's all going to work out. And, you know, I think as we keep making movies and the, the, you know, distribution and everything is changing so much and getting worse and worse and worse for indies. Um, It's gotten harder, but we're still doing it and we still push through. I think it's, you know, we keep thinking like after every movie, Corey's like, we're never going to do this again. We're never going to work together again. It's, well, we need it's, change. That. it's more like, I don't know. We made a, this is pretty much on topic, I guess, but we made a specific choice when we made our first feature to do, you know what? This is, this was 2008. Like we, this was before Glee when we did Where the World Mind and you know, we made the choice to make that independently. Like we didn't make the choice to like try to get jobs writing for television or to try to go through any sort of typical path of getting, you know, anything into, um, into, into existence. Like we, we chose to make an independent films that would premiere on the festival circuit and hopefully find distribution and find an audience. And that's, it was a little, we were a little late in the game to really make that work because everything was changing so much already by then. And then we made that film and the first, I mean, that was our, that other than being rejected as an actor a lot, which I got used to because that's what your life is. <laughs> right. That, the re- the reception of Where the Real Mind was a huge sort of kick in the beginning, even though it ends, even though the story of that movie ends up being a, a happy story, like we got rejected from every top tier festival in the world and with extremely bizarre circumstances like one festival literally said your movie's too gay for our audience another festival said we um basically said that like they thought that the story of like an out gay kid crushing on this high school jock was cliche like this was before glee this was before it gets better campaign this was before the trevor project like and you know and 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 that was like I, I think we learned very quickly to figure out how to turn all of that into something because we put together a team of people, publicists and people that just muscled that movie to the point where it was, you know, it played like almost 200 festivals, won like 30 awards. It was critics picked the New York times. We sold out theatrical runs in New York and LA and Chicago. And, and it is often brought up in the list of like great queer movies from that era, which is, you know, you have, we had to go through the kind of terrible part of that to get to that point. Right. And, and you just didn't of, let up. You just didn't let it stop. Just you just didn't. kept. And I think when through. Tom says it gets harder when we get older, it's, it's the same thing. It's just, it gets harder to keep not letting up. You know what I mean? Because right. To be that exhausting. Yes. Yeah. It's exhausting. And, and even now it's like, if we had made that movie today, I think we would have a very different reception. And, and, you know, at the time, like, we couldn't get a meeting with any executive studio or television executive or agent or manager. And if we did get the meeting, it was, Oh, your work is too gay. Like when are you going to do something more mainstream? Um, So I I think the law, the sort of answer is 
there's just, you know, it's like one of those, you know, they always say like, if you can do something else, do it. Like that's what my acting, one of my acting teachers always said in college, if you can imagine yourself doing anything else with your life, do that. And still, we can't quite imagine ourselves doing anything else with our lives. So you have to put up you with have to the do crap. It. Yeah. yeah. Do yeah. you do other things? Or are you guys mostly focused all on your filmmaking? Um, Tom still does casting. Yeah. Um, occasionally, I think, the, what's the last thing he did? It's been a while. I mean, my Mind Hunter, Hunter, the David Fincher series, was the last thing he did. Oh, I, did Jonathan you know, Groff read for yeah. you? He's no, no, I did the... I did the um, all the extras in, uh, all right. Pittsburgh. in Pittsburgh. There you go. All right. Yes, he is delightful. He's we've delightful. done a, a couple of other pro- we've done other projects that are not our own projects, and we we've actually started in the last two years trying to figure out how to navigate like more of like helping produce other people's work. And there's a few projects that we're working on in that capacity instead of our own scripts and our own stories, um, which I think is smart. We probably should have done that a little earlier, but but um, Tom is actively working towards like getting a, his first television directing credit. So he, that's something he really wants to do. Um, I continue to write, like I like writing, I like telling stories and it's just, yeah, trying to find the right way to get something into production that feels like it will work for, for now and for the future. And, you know, maybe um, going into real estate a little bit, like I don't know if it's a house. No, that's what I'm, <laughs> So I, this is what I'm, I'm asking you because this is what I'm telling people. <laughs> Make your money somewhere else, dabble in show yeah. business or make it like yeah. make it so it's not your thing. Because th- when people were saying, if you do anything else, do it, I we all yeah. bought it. We all thought that we would, yeah. the show business gods would smile on us if we wanted it the most, if we were devoted. Yeah, yeah. I have these little side hustles that I find very fulfilling, very fun, and they're fair. Like I do the thing, they pay yeah. me the money. There, It's a... And I'm able to yeah, do the yeah. other creative stuff because I'm not being driven crazy. I can hang in longer yeah. because I'm not traumatized all the time. So, um, yeah. So that <laughs> idea of like you have to that. write it, the, you have to want it the most, or you have to be so monogamous to your dream. Uh, if you do anything else, you're cheating on it. I don't buy that. I think it was uh, not didn't yeah. serve me. Thoughts? I mean, listen, like, I, 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 thank you for I coming to my TED talk. <laughs> I, I could definitely use more of the balance, but it is the thing about that. The statement that is sort of true is like, if you're, there are a lot of other people who are that dedicated and, but the, the reality is that whether or not you find the success you thought you're going to find has very little, you can't do much about it. You right. know, it's like, it's a lot of it's out of you your can, control. You can, you can make a movie that plays a thousand film festivals and everybody loves it. And you have a hundred thousand reviews and then nobody wants to buy it. Yeah. I mean, there's still like, I don't remember the number I don't want to say, but there's a large, there's a double digit number of movies from Sundance this year that it still haven't sold. It's different than we thought it would be when we were coming up. I think that's what. Yeah. And we've been lucky to, we've been lucky to, you know, we've put our films together that we've made. Like we you know, we made one movie for like $20,000. And so that we, the amount of money we made from that was good. And then other movies that are bigger, we make sure that we build into the budget enough money to pay ourselves for the, you know, the like three years that it actually takes to get a movie done from beginning to end. And so we like, it has work. We, people ask us often like filmmakers that we meet at festivals or whatever, like, how do you actually keep doing it? Like, can you actually pay your bills? And we can come close to paying our bills with just this, but 
uh, for how much longer, I don't know, because it is changing so much. The yeah. distribution and everything is changing so much. But I do think, I mean, the way that we keep going is like, even with Hello Again, it's like if if we can keep surrounding ourselves with such amazing people like yeah. Michael John Lacusas and the Indigo Girls and right. like that, that is our motivation to keep going. You like, get to do the thing and you want it to exist yeah, yeah, and it exists yeah. and no yeah. one can take a, take that away from you. Um, Corey, yeah. when, when Tom is directing on set, what are you doing? Where, what are you oh doing on set? <laughs> I imagine you running around. <laughs> well, um, it used to be, okay. I'm not, I have a lot of, I have some issues with anxiety. I have some issues with, uh, I'm a Virgo when things aren't going perfectly right. I get very nervous. And so film sets must be a wonderful environment for that. Yeah, They're no, I great. don't, don't spend, <laughs> that's not true. I would say. If it's a good day, if things are going well, then I'm sitting like next to Tom the whole day and I'm, I'm annoyingly whispering all of my thoughts into his ear. Um, and then there are days when things are not going well, when I just sit in the trailer or like, you know, go for a walk or, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, um, I, the things that I have directed, the, the, the few projects I have directed have purposefully have had little to no crew and just a couple of performers because I want, uh, that's my speed as a director. Like I can't, I don't have the, I don't have the capacity, like emotionally, mentally to like Tom is, I don't understand, honestly, like he, he can run a 200 person crew and it doesn't, I mean, he gets flustered and gets, and gets like, you know, anxious at times, but people listen to him. Nobody listens to me because I don't, I get <laughs> too anxious and then nobody wants to hear my voice. But with him, he's, it's just a different yeah, so typically I'm, if it's a good day, I'm there and I'm having fun and, or at least I'm being helpful. And then other days I'm just hiding. Sort of. You're just sometimes the hiding. I, he's You're still helping and hiding. My, he's still, oh, I will text. He's texting I will text. you. I will definitely text. Don't forget, you, don't forget to make that hat on. Make sure that hat is on the kid or whatever. But I, I, yeah. I, I, I think like, um, <laughs> yeah, I think. It's weird. It's hard. It's shooting movies is extremely stressful. And especially when it's like everything we've done, it's been our script. Like we found the money, like it, it's us. That's always on the line, you know? And so that is where the pressure comes down on me in a way that is not super healthy for me. Yeah. You're um, not guns for hire. You're yeah. the, you're the, yeah, no. the, the reason that it happened. Um, Missy Pyle sings really well in your movie. Yes. And I got to work with her on a little fashion police segment for one afternoon it was the year that the artist was nominated for best picture and we were i worked on fashion police with joan rivers and we did a segment where we were helping missy Pyle pick out her dress for the oscars and missy was all in because she wanted to hang out with joan (laughs) rivers and i just remember going to the studio in hollywood and missy being a delight and so excited to be working with joan rivers and we ended up putting her in the swan dress as a joke for um (laughs) <laughs> the Bjork swan dress. And I have a photo of the three of us in the, in the prom dress. So oh, anyway, I'm a fan of Missy Pyle, wow. but she's a real yeah. revelation as a singer in this movie. Yeah, she is. And she, I mean, she knows this too, but we had a different person cast in the role that then didn't work out. And we actually were watching Tig, you know, Tig has uh, her television show on Mississippi that Missy is on. Right. And Missy plays the. We were. It was like the day that we lost the other actor, and we were watching that episode. And 
And there's a scene where Missy gets up on stage in a bar with a guitar and sings a song. And we were like, oh my God, that's totally this Robin. Is, that's her. <laughs> and she had been on a list before. We just hadn't, I don't know why, you know, you, you get, you know, sometimes your casting director sends a list of 50 people and you're like, oh my gosh, how do you um, even absorb that information? Like, where do you go from there? Um, but she's, and again, when it, when it works, I mean, we, we went out to Missy officially and it was within like hours that we, yeah, we were booking her travel. You know what I mean? So it's like when it's meant to be, it's meant to be. It's and, meant to be. and she is a, it's delight, a very like, fast casting process. When, extremely, when you she'll be in, um, uh, where the opening night film at San Diego, uh, gay and lesbian film festival next Thursday night. And she'll be there and Tig will be there and Alan and Alex will be there. She'll be fun. And Michelle Chamiel will be there. That'll be fun too. How exciting. Maybe I'll come yeah. down there. I wonder if it's sold out. You should. I'll oh, it'll be super there. fun. Uh, it is kind of sold out, but let us know and we will... Um, maybe I'll make that happen. Yeah, a road trip. <laughs> um, the, I think that you have saved tent sex from the scourge of Brokeback Mountain, which was worked for that film, but it didn't look that fun. But you, you give us some tent sex that actually looks fun. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that scene yeah. and how you approach that with the actors? <laughs> that yeah, was we, actually, well, wait, was, me, that was a cover set. Because yeah, because what does that mean? A cover set. Make- so, well, in, first of all, in Mexico city, there really is a rainy season and our Mexican, uh, our producers in Mexico kept saying like, we really need to delay the shoot a little bit because they're not joking about, the rainy season. Right. And sure enough, it rains every day from, you know, two right. to five or something. And so we were, our first week of shooting was supposed to be the tent stuff, right? No, the second, second week maybe it was going to be camping and we were going to do the tent, you know, at the campsite and got the tent was a cover set. We should have to explain what that a is. A cover set is if you have bad weather, you go to right. the stage. You've got a backup. Set. That was, that was one that kept floating around the schedule. Right. Cause we're like, okay, which is actually do not want to yeah, actors don't want to see that scene as the floating around the schedule. They right, want to know they want to know when they're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the second week we got completely washed out, and so we decided to go to the to the stage and do the tent. And yeah. so we we built this. You know, we had the tent in a sound stage, and luckily that was the only thing we did that day. Um, so it was we had a nice pace. We were able to like kind of you know, do the, the bulk of the, there's, our, a, there's another scene that happens in the tent that is dialogue. And we let that kind of happen. And then and our, our um, choreographer choreographer was sort of the intimacy coordinator and helps them work out how it would work. And, yeah. and it was very quiet. It was, we had a, we called us crew that yeah. day and, um, and the tent was surrounded by like curtains. So like within that curtain area, it was like almost nobody, just really Tom and, and Frankie, our, our choreographer, and um, and we just sort of let them figure it out organically in large part, right? And it was actually kind of difficult to edit because we knew that song was it was going to be a reprise of a song there. And it's like, how do you make this feel like a real moment and feel like sexy and beautiful and real with the music? And I think what we put ended up putting together is, is really nice, but... Um, but yeah, they were definitely nervous. Sure, I just <laughs> like that. Be? I like that it was in the movie. I thought it it, it was important, and it, it yeah it showed their their real connection on all these different levels. And I thought it was well done. And so, uh, and we really wanted was- we really specifically chose to put it at that point in the story instead of much earlier on because a lot of times sex is used as more of like a 
inciting incident kind of turning point in a relationship is right. like, you know, but it's like once you hit that point and it's funny, our, our costume designer, she's hilarious. She, she, when we were working in pre-production, she was like, she was like, I have to tell you, I love this script, but why is this sex so late? She's like, shouldn't they have sex sooner? <laughs> She's like, I was just waiting and waiting. I thought you weren't going to do it. I have one more question before we go, but I want to let you guys talk about all the festivals and stuff you got coming out. Um, I, I, I brought up the Instagram page because you guys got a bunch. So talk to me about, first of all, you got San Diego, right? Yeah, we have San Diego uh, next week, which will be very fun. It's at the Natural History Museum and it'll be San in, Diego. In Balboa Park. It'll be. Uh, oh, that's amazing. That. Opening night. I love it. Yeah. And then we're, and that again is going to have a bunch of Alex and Alan are going to be there in person, which is fantastic. Yeah. They're spending a nice chunk of money to bring Alex and Alan from overseas to and for San Diego. Miss, yeah. For San Diego. Yeah. And then Missy and Tigger coming down from LA and then Corey and I and Michelle, uh, the music producers coming as well. I love um, it. And then I'm looking at the yeah, list. I'm going to rattle them off. Um, yeah. Shreveport, Honolulu, uh, Merced. Where is that? Somewhere foreign? It's in California. California. Oh, awesome. Something like Silicon Valley-ish. Oh, right on. It's a small festival. I think it's only their second year, but we were happy to let them. We won their big film awards, so we're the, the, last, <laughs> the last screening of the festival. Then the next one, Port Townsend, is actually... Port Townsend is a great, small, like, um, regional festival that does an incredible job, and they're actually doing a whole Indigo Girls Day. They show the documentary, they show our movie, then Indigo Girls Play... And oh. then there's a glitter and dune party, dance party. Oh, I, I, but, I've spent some time in Port Townsend. I used to do little writing yeah. retreats there with a writer friend, and I love it. There was this place called the Rose Theater. I don't know if that's where you're showing, but it would be amazing know. if it were. I don't, I don't know. We're, yeah. we, I mean, it's not sad. We're actually uh, going to Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Guests, so we're going to miss Port Townsend, but oh. we're going to be the... Is it closing night? It's closing night film in Hong Kong. And we're going with Alex Glitter. Uh, to Hong Kong, which will be incredible. Oh, that's going to be amazing. Um, then you've got Palm Springs, Chicago, Fresno. I love the Fres. I love the Fres Film Festival. They're really nice up there. Sarasota, Atlanta, all of these places. Winston-Salem. And people can follow you on Instagram. Or yeah. what's the best way to keep up with what's up with the yeah. film? Yeah, in- Instagram is where we're putting. We have some really fun behind-the-scenes stuff. Um, Butter and Doom Musical is the handle. Butter and we're Doom. trying to treat it more like you know, it's hard. We're trying to be less promotional and more giving like the behind the scenes and like fun, fun stuff for people to interact with and, and get to experience, experience the, the story of the film and the story of making the film from a different angle. Before I let you go, I want to share this I thought with you. I think for creative people doing things like this, big things, they're really hard, but they're worth it, right? Why is it worth it? Because um, I believe the same thing. There are things you go through. I didn't make a dime on that, whatever. It was worth it. I wanted it to exist. It was just worth it. There's no glory in not doing it. You got to do it, right? Yeah. This and this this particular film is was just was huge. It was a it was a monster to get made. And for me, the the thing that makes it worth it is like last Wednesday night, we were the opening night film at the Austin um uh, Gay and Lesbian Film Festival, and just being, just being there, being like in the Q and A afterwards with you know a sold out audience and people like truly understanding like why we made the movie we made, and uh, uh, with a lot of the similar comments that you did, and you realize that everything you were hoping to accomplish, you accomplished. Then it's like you know you did it. You know you, you know you accomplished the goal, and it's like whether or not, regardless of what happens to it in the marketplace or or in the future, like it's there, you did it, it is what you wanted it to be and people got it. And that's to me really the only thing that makes me 
think maybe I will do this again. <laughs> right. And not everybody gets it. I mean, maybe I don't need to go everything. to real estate school right away. Right. <laughs> right. Um, here's my final question for both of you. What's a moment from the experience that you will never forget? Well, for, well, do you want to go first? Well, I think, uh, I mean, I think it's too, with, we have been such admirers of Indigo Girls for so long. Like Amy coming to Mexico and me knocking on her trailer, like, say hello like that was a pretty special moment and then <sighs> cut to months later in atlanta we're all set up in this you know recording studio that they do a lot of their albums at and we're waiting for emily to arrive and then all of a sudden she pops in and it's like that and the fact that they're crazy just mm-hmm. ridiculously nice people yeah. my my most memorable would also involve amy but it would be her second day of shooting we were is when we were doing the recording studio and you know she sings a bit of Prince of Darkness, which is actually an Emily written song. And I, and I knew that obviously, and I knew it was, it would be a thing for Indigo Girls fans that Amy was singing the Emily song. But what I thought was amazing was that she didn't know the chords. She didn't know the melody of the song. She's like, I don't, I've never sung this before in my life. I've never played this before in my life. She's like texting Emily. She's like, what are the chords? <laughs> and there's, so a picture, great. there's a picture, yeah. there's a picture, I think it's on her Instagram of, Michelle, like it's Tom on the couch in the studio and Michelle like on her knees with Amy and guitar and she's and Michelle's helping her learn like how to play the chords and sing the melody to the song that she's been singing for 30 some years. Amazing. And so we also had we had a we had a similar moment with Closer to Fine when we were doing it at the at the on set. We had a question about like, is it went to the fountains, went to the mountains? Like, yeah, is it the plural plural? singular? And she was like, I don't know. I don't she's know. like, I don't. She's like, I don't. She said, she said, she said, in our singing relationship, Emily always does the S's at the end of words. That's the, that's how close they are. You, they literally are dividing up letters and consonants. Yeah. Wow. Here's, I, I, I always say it's the last question. It's not. I have just a, a random thought. With the Indigo Girls, like, I don't break down every lyric and go, what does that mean? Although it's very poetic, and I'm sure if you're writing a screenplay, you do look at that. It's more of the feeling, right? Like, I never felt that, like, Get Out the Map was a real love song until I heard it the way you guys use it. I always felt like a, let's go. Yeah. Like, it was kind of upbeat. And the yeah. melody is so beautiful, and this, the sentiment is like this, it's their love song. And I was like, I always thought that was a road trip song. Like, um, But it, it's, their, their lyrics are poetic, but they make you feel something, even though you're not breaking down every deep thought, Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yes, and I did my, and obviously, as a, as songwriters, um, any songwriter, sometimes this song is more narrative and is more literal, and sometimes it is more poetic, and you don't really know what's going on. And, and I, I did my best to choose lyrics that felt like they were coming out of these characters' mouths in this moment. But there are times when it's when you're when it when it's more poetry than it is. But yeah, it's they. I think. Amy tends to write a little more in sort of not code, but like in po- poetry. Um, Emily tends to write a little more um, stream of consciousness, right? Um, which is, you know, they're both. It is also a little bit of the of the balance between the light and the dark and the glitter and the doom. The you know the the literal and the abstract, and and I think um, and the it's, it's actually very interesting because songs give you a different feeling if you're not listening, if you're not paying attention to what the words are, then when you actually pay attention to the words. So it's like, yeah, they can give you a lot of different things in different ways at different times. And hopefully in this movie, they all give you what you need in that moment from the characters in the story. 
Right. I have one other. I have, I have one other crazy moment. Yes, please. We love it. So Galileo is a yes, song that we knew it. had to be in there. We had to be in there. We didn't know how. We didn't know where it was going to be. Whatever. And then we decided to have it in in the club. And so we decided to do a remix of the song, a club remix. Right. Of the song. With, you hear their vo- the vocals, the Indigo Girls. And vocals. so we had to. We reached out to to them, and they. You know, this was done in when was the original Galileo? 1987 or 80, no, 85? No, like that? I think 90. 90? Uh, anyway, not recently. Um, and they had to go to Sony and Sony had to actually digitize. They had it on reels. They had right. it on like They didn't have reels, it in the right yeah. format for today. No. So we had to wait and we thought we were, I mean, I honestly thought we were never going to get it. Wow. Um, and then Corey and I were standing. Yeah, we got, meantime, we were we got Ruby Rose to say that she would do the remix. She would do the remix. Amazing. And we were standing, waiting, waiting to get into Broadway Bears here in New York. And all of a sudden, I got a text that said the stems have been delivered. And so we're sitting on the sidewalk. You got the stems. You got the stems. It's just a drop box with like 30 stems. And just to hear their vocals bare and live with nothing around it was just my but every, I mean, even the guitar just by itself and the, and the that pattern I, the by itself. I mean, the, um, pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah. Pretty special. What about the soundtrack? Is it going to be out there? You know, we'll do that. Yeah. We're going to have a soundtrack. Have do? Where do I have to Venmo? What uh, happens? <laughs> we'll have a soundtrack <laughs> a later. Because we're obviously dealing with their, you know, with their publishing and the, yeah, the labels and stuff. So it's in the process. We're yeah. working on it. It will, it will be a thing at some point. Hopefully. It'll also will be a, wait, we can, well, say there's going to be a new original song in the credits as well from Indigo Girls. Oh, amazing Which for the for just, Oscar consideration, of course. Yes, exactly. Well, we're gonna we're gonna do our best. You know, whether or not it's realistic that we would be nominated, it it would be important for us to put this song into that conversation in some way. Yeah, of course. Also, they're having their closer to find Barbie moment. You know, yes. it's 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 all in the air. I mean, they have a pivotal song, and they have a pivotal song in one of the most the biggest hit movies of all time. Yeah. But, and I'm, unfortunately it can't, it's not eligible for any award because it was written. So and we heard some demos and this song's pretty, pretty yeah, special. Song is very oh, special. I'm so excited. Pretty great. Is it thematically resonant with your story? Did they write it for the movie? Absolutely. Yes. Oh, amazing. Here's my final shallow question. If I were to ever make a movie in Mexico, would people bring me a quesadilla like on the set once in a while? Like what's the crafty life? <laughs> oh, I love chips yeah. and salsa oh, so fucking much. Yes. It'll be, an amazing, it'll be the best quesadilla you ever had. Yeah, the best catering. Yeah, right. With avocado in it, though. So, yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's just somebody floats around. And both with that movies stuff. we've had, both movies we've had uh, tequila sponsors. <laughs> So you get a lot of tequila. That might too. be the That's headline of this <laughs> episode. You guys, it was so fun to talk to you. I'm really going to explore the San Diego thing because I would love to see the movie on a big screen and be around oh, yeah. all oh, the, the festivities sure. and stuff. All right. This was yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Thank you yeah, so much. Know. Everyone should check out Glitter Thanks. and Doom. Uh, follow the Instagram and find out where it's showing. And just keep an eye out for it because it's a really special movie. Uh, it ticked all my boxes, as I like to say. Uh, so thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Tom and Corey. Keep an eye out for their movie, Glitter and Doom. You will enjoy it. And some of these festivals have streaming parts to their festival where you can watch things from wherever you are in the country. I'm not sure if their movie is in that category in any of these festivals, but it's something to keep an eye on. All right. So this happened uh, a couple weeks ago. I interviewed Craig Chester, the actor and filmmaker from Adam and Steve. And I heard from his producer of the film later, Kirkland Tibbles. I remember meeting Kirkland back in the day around the time of these movies and spending time with him at different events. And I always liked him. And he reached out after the interview and just um, said kind words and, and appreciated it. And 
left me a generous tip in my tip jar, which is always nice. And after we had our nice little phone call, I went on IMDb to remind myself what he's been up to, what movies he did, Latter Days, which I had seen. Like, I, I remember um, that movie very well and Adam and Steve and uh, different projects he's been involved with. And then I'm scrolling through his photographs on IMDb and I'm in one of them. There's a picture of me and Kirkland and Parker Posey together at an event. It must have been the Adam and Steve premiere. Um, that makes the most sense. And I'm wearing a Parker Posey and Waiting for Government t-shirt standing next to the real Parker Posey with Kirkland on the other side of me. I vaguely remember this event. I vaguely, I don't have that shirt anymore. What happened to that shirt? That was a great shirt. Why would I have ever given up that shirt? Unless I can't fit in it anymore, which is a possibility. Anyway, it was just random that I was on the website checking out what he'd been up to. And there I am with Parker Posey and a Dairy Queen shirt. Anyway, that's enough for this week. Thank you for listening. I want to give a shout out to AJ Sousa for mixing the episodes. My theme music is by Mark Daniels for Placement Music. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye. Bye.